The scripture reading today is from Paul's letter to the Colossians. We'll be starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and reading through verse 8. I'll be reading from the ESV. You can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen behind me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hope this finds everyone doing well today. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin a new study. And uh, so I prayed about this for several weeks as we uh, were ending up a few weeks ago after 2 Peter and a few of the other things that we had covered. And God just kept putting on my heart Colossians. And so uh, decided to just do Colossians. So we're going to go and do this much like uh, we did with Second Peter, where uh, whenever I have a chance uh, to be able to be back with you, we will just pick up in the verses where we left off. And some of the other pastors also have agreed that they possibly will also pick up in Colossians. And I've tried to break up the entire book so that we can keep some sort of continuity as much as possible uh, embedded in you know, a time when we know that we are going to have some, some one-off sermons as people substitute. So, appreciate everyone's patience in that. I hope you're looking forward to Colossians. I love Colossians. Of course, I mean, I can say that about every book, except maybe Leviticus. Uh, I like Leviticus. Uh, I wouldn't put it on the love category. Uh, it, it trips up most everyone's reading plans. So, uh, most, most reading plans should put it at the end, and then a whole lot more of them would get finished. But uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, just ask that you would meet with us here as we open your word this morning. As you promised, let it not return void. Whether we are a believer of many years or whether we are sitting here today uh, and we do not yet believe, maybe we are in complete abject denial, maybe we're uncertain, maybe we are just inquisitive, maybe we're brand new believer. Wherever we are, Lord, I pray that you would have your way as we walk through your word. We love you. And ask for your help now, in Christ's name, amen. All right, so the major theme in Colossians is the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. So when you, when you look at Colossians, the Christology that's in, in Colossians is incredible, but the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, and there's two words in that statement, supremacy and all. So this morning I was reading in this little book we're going to do in the men's study. The very first one we're going to do is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. And it's talking about the heart and the affections of the heart. 
And so when we talk about supremacy of Christ in all things, it includes even the things we long for in our affections. What are we drawn to? What do we long for? When our minds are, are, are drawn from the task at hand, do they fly to Christ or do they, do they, do they fly to some otherworldly thing to think on? And I, I think that for our church and each of us individually right now, to spend a lot of time focusing on Christ and His supremacy is going to be good for our souls. And it's going to be good for our love for each other. The themes that you're going to see threaded in this book are thankfulness, endurance, steadfastness, hope, practical instruction on the Christian life and walk, putting to death the old nature and putting on the new character of Christ. It's similar to Ephesians, the first chapter and a half or so are, are some theological. And then we have some real rubber meets the road Christianity in the middle of Colossians that we will all do well, I think, to, to, uh, to, to walk through together. I uh, go ahead and uh, look at your outline. I, had, I outlined the main book, so there's four main divisions that I see in the book, the introduction and the greeting, and then we see the first 23, or verses 3 through 23, Paul's thankfulness for the Colossians' faith and the preeminence of Christ. And then we have this big section in the middle, Verse 24 of chapter 1 all the way through 4, 6 is really around striving for Christian maturity, living for Christ while avoiding legalism. And then last, we have final greetings and a charge. This week, I broke it up into three. These eight verses we're going to cover in three chunks, the introduction. Then we're going to look at Paul thanks God for the Colossians. He has three things underneath there that he thanks God for, their faith, their love, and their hope. And then we will see the main emphasis is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing. And there's three ways that that happens, individually, as a church, that impacts the world. So this, this, since this is the first week of the letter, I'll do a brief background. Colossians, the authorship of Colossians is only mildly challenged. Uh, it's believed by most to be you know, written by Paul. There's no need to dwell on that. The time and the place of writing is not exactly certain. This will help tremendously. Thank you. Okay, here we go. We know it was written uh, from prison. Uh, three places are put forth as possibilities, either Caesarea, Ephesus, or Rome. And when Paul was in prison in Caesarea, we see in Acts 23, verse 24, he was heavily guarded, which is a little bit inconsistent with some of the, what he talks about in Philippians and, and Ephesians about how he was sharing the gospel and meeting with people. So it's probably not Caesarea. Most people discount that. It could be uh, Ephesians is a possibility, but his imprisonment is not mentioned in Acts, and Luke was with him. So Luke is pretty meticulous, so if that would have happened, you think Luke would have mentioned it. And then the other option is the most commonly held view, which is Rome. Um, the Ephesus argument also is that it was closer to Colossae, and so when Onesimus had fled... It would have been closer for him to be. And since Paul had, had, had indicated when he sent Onesimus back to Philemon that, you know, he wanted to see him again, that that long distance from Rome, maybe that wasn't as practical. And so that some people try to argue that maybe it happened in Ephesus. There is no way to know for certain. I, it doesn't change the main points of the, of the book at all, whether, whether you pick either one, but I think we should just stick with Rome, which is the most commonly held. The church was not founded by Paul. We see that Epaphras founded the church in the text we read. And Paul's writing a letter. Epaphras was a native of Colossae, 
And it's most likely that when Paul spent three years in Ephesus, he spent an extended time there, that Epaphras came from Colossae, heard the gospel, and went back and founded this church in Colossae. Now, why is it being written? So just take your Bible, turn over, or if you're on your device, scroll up to chapter 2. I think it's important to kind of look a little bit. Uh, In verse 4, of chapter 2, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Uh, Continuing to verse 8, it says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then on down in verse 16 through 19, we see Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints ligaments grows with growth that is from God. And so uh, I thought it was valuable to just read that this is some of what Paul's going to, you know, deal with, right, as he's going to deconstruct that. So what was going on? Uh, Obviously, we've talked about the false teachings that creep into the early church. Uh, Some of them took on forms of Greek and pagan influence, and others took on forms of Jewish law influence, a mixing together. It's not known exactly what the most prominent error for the Colossians was. It's probably a blend of Gnosticism and Jewish ceremonial law. Gnosticism, we get that from the word gnosis and uh, knowledge. And we see in our reading above some of the emphasis on the plausible arguments. We also see the worship of angels. And so this was a teaching that was grounded that matter was evil and higher and higher knowledge was more spiritual. So I think you see this backdrop here of this trying to worship, you know, angels or more and more knowledge has an element of this ascending to a higher spiritual realm. And so Christ coming in the form of a man would be a problem for them, right? Because he took on flesh, which would be matter, which they considered evil. And so Paul, I believe, is deconstructing this. And so we're going to trek through chapter 2 in detail uh, in the coming weeks. But I do think it's important to kind of understand why did Paul start with the preeminence of Christ and the gospel? And then he's going to talk about these other arguments. So even today, I would submit to all of us, if we are to combat unbelief and worldliness, I suggest we start with Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes I think we're tempted to, or we are tempted to start with apologetics or defending some sort of corner case theological point. And I'm not against those things. I love those things. And we are called to give a reason for the hope that we have. But I think that it's imperative that our faith in Christianity does not rest on some well-made point about a scientific fact or great argument about evolution versus creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 15 that without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. Therefore, to combat false teaching and unbelief, we must understand first and foremost what someone believes about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, and He came and died and was raised and ascended into heaven. Everything for for Christianity flows 
from this cornerstone. And so let's look at today's outline. The greeting, and then the thankfulness, and then the gospel that bears fruit. Acts 20, 24, the gospel of the grace of God. Romans 1, 9, the gospel of his son. 1 Corinthians 9, 12, the gospel of Christ. I'm not expecting you to keep up as you turn through your Bibles there. Romans 15, 16, the gospel of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the gospel of the glory of Christ. Ephesians 6, 15, the gospel of peace is described as eternal in Revelation 14, 6. And in Ephesians 1, 13, a message of truth in our passage today in verse 5 as the word of truth. Gospel literally means good news. It comes from the word where we get our word evangelized from. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death, and we too can experience life eternal if we believe. Now, this is the passage I would encourage you to turn to, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. It's a verse that uh, you should reference and know by heart or know where to go to when you're talking with anyone. If you want to do uh, sharing the gospel, it's a great succinct summary of the gospel. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures." Now, I'm going to take that verse, those three verses, and I'm going to put them on the backdrop of Romans 3. Not Romans 3, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 3 says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And let's read John 3, 14 to 19. In the middle of that is John 3, 16, which we see everywhere, Right? But I think it's important that we read John 3, 14 to 19. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And lastly, Romans 3.23 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been ma manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I'm sure these verses are familiar to many in this room. For some of us in here today, maybe this is the first time you're hearing these verses read. Or, I was thinking about what my kids say. 
Maybe today it hits different. Maybe something about it being read today hits different. Whether we have been a believer for a long time or not, we should never tire of hearing the good news of the gospel truth. The weight of our sin and the joy of our freedom in Christ, we should never, ever, ever grow weary of hearing that. The fact is, though, that there are ways that seem right to men, women, and children, and youth that can end in destruction. And even though all of us have sinned, we are all here today forgiven of that sin as promised in that Romans passage that I just read, or we stand condemned according to John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I start with that weighty set of verses because the title of the sermon today is the gospel, bearing fruit and increasing. So I figured we should start with the gospel because when we get down here into it, we're going to unpack it in application and what does it mean to bear fruit and increase. And the gospel is of utmost importance. And I put at the bottom of your uh, handout or the little outline at the bottom down there, I'm about to read to you uh, a little something about the gospel and I put all the verses in there that this came from, and then maybe you should maybe want to go look those up this week. It's just something to do in your quiet time. The gospel is to be shared and proclaimed. It is to be defended. We are to work hard to advance it. We are to fellowship among others who believe it. And sometimes we are called to suffer for the sake of it. And we should be careful that our lives don't hinder it. And we should never be ashamed of it. And above all, Remember that it doesn't come by our power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. So with that backdrop, let's delve into this week's text. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is basically how Paul opens all his letters, his apostleship, the authority with which he writes his letter. It's not simply as a messenger, but an official representative of Christ who sent him. He did not attain this by his own efforts, but he acknowledges it. It comes from the will of God. We know all about Paul. Most of us have heard about Paul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, trained under Gamaliel. We also know that he was zealous, and zealous to the extent of persecuting Christians until he met Jesus Christ. And Christ called him to bear the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles, and Paul was radically changed. He is here from Timothy, his true child of the faith, is described in 1 Corinthians 4.17. Timothy is also included in the introduction of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He has two letters written to him directly. He is mentioned in Philippians 2.2 for his service with Paul in the advancement of the gospel. And here he is seen serving Paul while Paul's in prison. And in 2 Timothy 4, we see Paul ultimately passing the ministry to him. To the saints and faithful brothers. Saints are set apart or holy ones. The faithful brothers is a familial term. It can be translated brothers and sisters. And he's addressing it to those in Christ at Colossae. 
So these are not two separate groups, but describing the brothers and sisters who are believers, those in Christ who are set apart, pursuing holiness, honoring God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Every, pa- every one of letters, every one of Paul's letters has grace and peace to you in part of the opening. Grace, recognizing the unmerited favor from, fa- from God, shalom, peace that comes from knowing that you're in right relationship with God. Verses 3 through 8, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Paul is writing here in the plural, indicating that they are praying. And obviously they have the Colossians top of mind, but it does not say that they are always praying every second. What it says is when we pray, we always thank God for, they are thankful for three reasons. The faith of the Colossians, the love for the saints, and the hope that compels them. So let's first look at their faith. So let's read this carefully. One of the first things we see, even though he is hearing of their faith, he is not ascribing credit for their faith to the Colossians. He is thanking God for their faith, which means he is ascribing the authorship of it to God, which we know that God is the author and perfecter of faith. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. John 6.47 says that he who believes has eternal life. But a few verses previously in 6.44, Jesus says, No one come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what is faith? So let's start with what it's not. It's not some sort of empty pond, sky, uncertain, feeling mystical or mysterious, indeterminate thing. Just got to have faith. You ever hear anybody say that? Just got to have faith. In what? Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith has to have an object for it to make any sense or be definable. So what can we have faith in? Money? A sports team? Our own strength? Other people? Government? No, take that last one off. It's impossible. Um, All of the above things are things that can let us down. Looking back at the passage, we see Paul mentioning in verse 2 and in verse 4, the object of their faith is they are in Christ. Paul is thankful because he's hearing of their faith, and the object of their faith is Christ. So at the risk of being repetitive here, the author of their faith is God, the object of their faith is Christ, and evidence provides assurance that their faith is genuine. True saving faith has repentance and obedience as elements. The book of James has a big warning in it, right? Faith without works is dead. But let's read a a, a verse that... uh, 
all of the Reformed folks like to go to. Favorite verse. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's so easy to stop at the fact that God saves us, but why does he save us? It's clear we are not saved by our works, but we are saved to do good works. And so one of the evidences of having faith is that it should be visible. We, we look at Hebrews, that passage I read. If you keep reading in chapter 11, it's the hall of faith. It says, by faith Enoch, by faith Moses, by faith Abel. So, the first thing here is the Colossians had a faith that was evident. Secondly, they had a love, their, their love for all the saints. It's another evidence of faith and genuine belief. Now, there are a lot of things that you might see that some people put forth as evidences of faith. Jewelry, bumper stickers, t-shirts, maybe have gone on a mission trip or served on a service project, attend church regularly. None of those above mean that you're not a believer or a person of faith, but they also cannot prove in themselves that you are. So let's look at John 13, 34 through 35. It says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Love for each other inside the believing church is a powerful witness. Last week, Bruce spoke of the weight of the church. His description of his experience with our body here at Christ Redeemer Church was convicting, challenging, and encouraging all at the same time. If you haven't listened to that, if you happen to miss that last week, you know, go listen to it. I was out of town and I listened to it and it was awesome. Doing life together as a church is not always easy. Life is not always easy. And sometimes loving each other is hard. We have a variety of personalities and experiences, backgrounds, baggage, pains, hurts. And let's face it, some of us are just hard to love sometimes. But we also bring many strengths and gifts and resources and energy as well. We have one spirit, the Holy Spirit, and we have unity in him. And it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that all of us unique, diverse individuals that God has created are able to be built up into one body and one church with at the head Jesus Christ. This verse also says love for all the saints. Which if we expand this command to include loving other saints that maybe don't do church the exact way we do. Or hold to the exact same convictions that we do on certain theological points. Now this complicates things. But it doesn't seem to give us an out on this, does it? 
It says we are to have a love for all the saints. Galatians 6, 9 to 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's not give up. Let's do good, especially to those. Now, what's the source of the love for all the saints? Keeping going through here. Why should we work so hard at loving the saints? Because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. It says right here. That's the compelling reason. The hope of Jesus Christ and his return. 1 Peter 1.13 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Second Peter, we just covered it together a few weeks ago. The last three chapters all had the hope of the glory of Christ's return as a compelling thing. And then Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in John 3, 1 through 3, I'll start in verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, I don't know if you're a believer reading those verses. If, I mean, if that doesn't compel you uh, to be hopeful, you know, I don't know. gets me motivated. They're kind of like high-octane verses. Should get us going. Next level. Now, let's read this, take it in its entirety. talks about what we heard of the gospel truth which has come to you as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf we see the word of truth the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing first where in you and me individually then us the church and ultimately, the whole world. It starts first and foremost with each of us individually. This is the crux of the entire passage. And so let's ask ourselves some basic questions. Is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in me? Do I have the fruits of the Spirit? Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control increasing in me is the evidence of those increasing. Am I striving to love the saints? Is sanctification happening? Growth. Is boldness increasing? 
Confidence in the gospel. Hope in our Lord Christ. Then we must ask, are we bringing ourselves together to produce fruit and increase the gospel among ourselves and into the community? Our workplaces? The businesses we frequent? Are we taking the gospel broadly into the world? One small way we can all be active in mission work is to not take for granted the little uh, handouts that is put together for our gospel partners. Read those. Think on those. Meditate and pray on those ministries. And maybe ask God what He would have us do to support individually or as someone from the church or or to at least know how to pray specifically for our gospel partner. You are supporting them as you give here and as we give of our resources here. You know, it's prayed about and then we vote as a, as a group to affirm the elders' decisions of which ministries to support. And so therefore we are, in essence, approving and participating in taking the gospel to the world. And I guess this is a serious question for us. How are we engaging our community and how are we engaging the world? And I know for a fact that there are some in the room here that are really passionate about and have a burden for the lost. They look for opportunities to speak of Jesus often. And some in here are involved in active mission work. I would encourage all of us to earnestly pray and evaluate the gospel fruit and increase in our own personal life. Sometimes when we hear the word evangelize, we think of many different things. For some of us, the immediate thought is, oh, door-to-door evangelism. For others, it's a mission trip. For some of us, it's getting someone to say a prayer or make a decision for Christ. I would submit that all the above are possibilities, but not the only possibilities. I've personally been trained in how to use a variety of techniques to share the gospel. Four spiritual laws... Romans Road, Three Circles Evangelism, the Gospel Bracelet, and I've done mission work locally, abroad, and house to house. And I would submit that all of those ways to encapsulate and articulate key truths succinctly and clearly are great tools. They're great tools. That's what they are. They're tools. They're tools in the toolkit on how to, you know, succinctly encapsulate and communicate key truths about the gospel. And we use those tools and we draw on them when we're sharing with people about our faith. But none of those tools matter if the heart is not oriented toward a love for Christ and a desire to name his name and share the good news that he has come, he has died, he was raised, and he is seated at the right hand of God. And the joy of knowing Christ must swell up in our own hearts and among our body in such a way that the good news is proclaimed loudly and boldly and often. And we must have a concern that there are people who are perishing. All those tools are for naught. if our heart's not right.
Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and then in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When we encounter Jesus Christ, it should impact our lives. Reorient our lives. Acts 1.8 says, well, let me say this. The gospel's impact on the whole world starts with individual faith. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So we see here how Epaphras was a faithful servant who brought this truth to the Colossians and they learned it from him. And he is now sharing about how the gospel is bearing fruit and the love of the Spirit is evident among them. Let's go ahead and try to find a way to close this section. Let's start with our own heart check. Individually. Have you heard and understood the gospel of truth? Are you in Christ? If you are uncertain or know for sure you aren't, I would beg you, do not delay. Flee to Christ. It says in Romans, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For as with a heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord that's Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, remember back when I read that passage about 3.23, Romans 3.23? It's very important that we make a simple distinction here when we're talking about the gospel and we're talking about the individual faith. I've heard the gospel presented so many times and sometimes people use 3.23 and they say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is true. But the dangers of that is that we should never become like that's okay. Yes, all have sinned, but at some point I have to get to a point of understanding that it is my sin, my personal sin that put Jesus Christ on that cross, and I need forgiveness. The impact of the gospel bearing fruit and increasing on the whole world starts with individual faith. Now, for those of us who believe, How are we doing for our love for the saints? Is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in our lives? I had quite a few examples earlier. Growth, spirit, sanctification. Church family, how are we doing? If someone were to write about the churches in Collin County, would our faith be evident? Would they see the love we have for the saints, for each other? And would it be evident that it is the hope of Christ's return that compels us? 
So a question, are we doing enough locally to pro proclaim the gospel? We don't have to answer that today. But I think we should always ask ourselves, are we? Now, Paul was thankful for the Colossians. And uh, we're heading now into October and into November. It's uh, my wife's favorite time of the year, Thanksgiving. So I would challenge us to take up a spirit of thankfulness as we head into this season. Let's enter into this season with thankful hearts. Let us not grow weary of hearing the good news of the gospel. And let's be compelled by the hope of Christ's return to love each other well. And to proclaim the good news of the gospel to others. But it is my great hope that your first, most thing that you're thankful for is Jesus Christ. And then, let's be thankful for each other and our church and the relationships that we have and the unity that we have in Christ and the opportunity that we have to do good for all the saints and the ability for us to join together and impact the world one conversation at a time. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. I thank you for Paul's letter to the Colossians and that we are able to benefit from it even here in our church today by seeing how you wrote to them and encouraged them. Lord, I just am glad that you had Paul write these letters. Help us to draw from them what we should that we might be a church here today that um, is known for our faith, known for our love, and compelled by hope in you and your return. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.